ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hi, this is Jay Richards, a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, and I am joined by a friend, longtime collaborator and thinker that I've known for, gosh, I don't know, maybe 20 years now, Bijan Namadi. And I, I thought that we had actually done this before on ID the Future, but uh, it looks like this may be the first time we've actually talked. So let me tell you a little bit about Bijan. We're actually going to talk about the Webb Space Telescope, but Bijan is actually the, the right guy to talk about this very thing, for those of you that are wondering and have been following the news about the Webb Telescope. Bijan received his PhD in experimental elementary particle physics from the University of Washington. Uh, his research has spanned the fields of high-energy physics, stellar interferometry, and high-precision metrology. Currently, he's a senior research scientist at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, and he works on the Space Telescope. Briefly, actually, he worked, as uh, I recently learned, very briefly, a long time ago on this telescope in its early times, and he's worked on instruments related to the direct detection of exoplanets, all of which is relevant to the James Webb Space Telescope. Bijan, thanks for joining me. Glad to be with you, Jay. Well, so let's uh, kind of dive into the details. But before we do that, why don't you give us a sort of elevator pitch explanation of what the James Webb Telescope is and what makes it special? How is it that it took so long to, to come online? Yeah, James Webb Telescope is designed to be a general purpose telescope that can do imaging and spectroscopy in the near and far infrared, and we'll ex explain what those are, uh, significance are. But in that sense, it's unique, and that's a really important part of the uh, light spectrum to be able to detect th and measure things about the universe. And there's nothing really that can do what James Webb is going to do, neither on the ground or in space. So t who is James Webb, for those that don't know? Oh, he was a major figure in the early days of NASA. He was appointed by John F. Kennedy as the administrator. I think it was 1961. And it was under his watch that, like, you know, Alan Shepard's first flight was under James Webb. So he was a major influence. You know, he was the director of NASA through all of that, through the Mercury and Gemini and the beginnings of Apollo 1, like the Apollo 1 fire. You know, he was the director at that wow. time. Yeah. And then I think he, his career, I mean, he was replaced just about when the moon landing was about to happen. So he kind of saw that development. So probably you could say he was the administrator during the glory days of NASA, the hmm. biggest, the best days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you've done NASA related work and directly or indirectly for a long time, right? I mean, you were at JPL and then you're at University of Alabama Huntsville, which has NASA work there for people that don't know that. But you had mentioned to me that you early on, right out of grad school or something like that, you, you had a, 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 played some kind of part, right? At least briefly in the early developmental stage uh, of the Webb Telescope. First of all, what were you doing and why'd this take so darn long? Yeah, well, those days uh, I was just making a transition from particle physics and I used to joke that I was faking my way into doing astronomy instead. <laughs> and I was at Lockheed Martin and they were competing at that time for a mm -hmm. you know, major part of the James Webb. And they're working on something called wavefront sensing and control. And I was, you know, for a little brief time kind of working on that. But later on, I moved away from that work and ended up at the Jet Propulsion Lab working on 
a flagship NASA mission that was going to be sort of like a, a complement to James Webb. It was, uh, whereas James Webb is a general purpose telescope for doing a very wide range of astronomy, there are the special purpose instruments, or in my case, it was the Space Interferometry Mission, were designed to make interstar angle measurements, angles hmm. between stars, which sounds really boring, mm-hmm. but really, in a sense, all of astronomy leans on that. And it had the capability of detecting angles to within a, a small fraction of a billionth of a degree, so that it had to self-measure itself to smaller than a, a radius of a hydrogen atom. And uh, so it was just a spectacular instrument. And uh, yet about uh, 2010, it was canceled, not so much because it was running into trouble. It it had finished its technology program, and I was deeply involved in that. But at that time, James Webb was running over in budget. Hmm. And NASA had to make a choice, and they downgraded everything else. And eventually, it just was too expensive to keep another flagship mission at that time. So, yeah. Well, so so this, at least the final price tag is something like $10 billion, which is a nice round number, but it's a very large round number. And so well, why why is it so expensive? I mean, obviously it had to go into space, but I take it that there was a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Uh, it turns out like people who do design of space telescopes and, you know, we in the public sector it would be NASA and it could it would be organizations that work for the US government that use telescopes for other things. Mm-hmm. And they have they've built enough of these things, enough telescopes, not not James Webb's, but they've built enough telescopes that they, they even have like rules of thumb of what a telescope will cost, depending on how big it's gonna be, what features it has. And if they had followed those rules, they would have known that back in, you know, early in the nineties and in two thousand you know, what the cost of this telescope was going to be. And it was going to probably be in today's dollars, close to what it is. Oh. And the problem was that it was under underbid. I don't know exactly the right word, is mm-hmm. when you, you bid a really low number. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the way bid, bidding projects work. Yeah. yeah. You, you want to get the project. So Yeah. You, uh, in fact, the NASA administrator, Mike Griffin, at one point said that said as much and he came to the scene much after much of this was had happened already but he said mm-hmm. it isn't so much that they're over budget as they were underpriced undercosted yeah. and so and the problem with that of course is that the decision makers need accurate costs to to weigh the relative value of different yeah. missions and so it is not a good thing to do and i think that I'm super happy that James Webb had a successful launch and a successful first stage of deployment. And I wish the very best for that telescope and the team and everyone. But I think going forward, we really want to be super careful about yeah. the pie in the sky bits. And and we will be uh, confronting that. There are major, major telescopes being discussed right now as follow-ons. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we don't want to play that game again. And I think that, yeah. that's something we want to be kind of aware well, of. And so, so this the podcast obviously is audio, so people can't sort of look at. We don't have video to show anyone, but um, if I understand, so the launch was on Christmas Day, That's right. and they started. Uh, they've unfurled. It's a multi mirror array. There is a shield. So just kind of describe the structure of this thing because it really looks different from other telescopes like like the Hubble that people might have seen pictures of. Yeah, if you if you imagine, you know, this whole thing had to be what is called the fairing on the top of a missile of a, of a rocket, mm-hmm. an Ariane five, which is one of the very very biggest largest pieces of real estate you can get. 
or that kind of thing. It still had to be folded up because it's a six and a half meter primary mirror diameter that was in three pieces. So the two sort of, it was a central part and two wings that mm-hmm. fold out. And if you were to ask me, like, where are the, the biggest nail biters? I'd say launch. Yep. Uh, one time, a, a project manager at NASA, I was kind of asking, why are these so many launch issues? You know, it goes, Bijan, you know, that thing is sitting on a bomb, okay? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So that's a bomb. (laughs) Yes, and we're trying to use the bomb to get it into space. Control that explosion, yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, so the launch is scary, and the first deployment of the mirror is scary. That part Mm -hmm. where the mirror should not stick, should not, you know, latch up or anything, you know. So it has unfolded, and now it needs to latch and lock into its final place. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the other part that is super scary, it would still have a telescope, but you wouldn't have an infrared telescope. It would have been if the, the sun shield, which is the size of a tennis court underneath it, where the sun would otherwise shine on it, yep. this, this mylar, multi-five-plane mylar sheet the size of a tennis court unfurls. And it's so thin and so delicate that the thing will just crawl open just tiny mm. bit at a time, not to rip anything. And then once it's fully tightened up, it is five layers of shielding the thing. And you go at one side from, you know, uh, hundreds of degrees to 40 Kelvin, you know, way, way cold uh, yeah. on, the, on the telescope side. And, and that's the, one of the, you know, pride and joy of this telescope is it can get that cold. That's a big deal. And, and, so, that's, yeah. and that's crucial for uh, viewing in the infrared, I that take it. That is right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's a phenomenon yeah. of black body radiation. Okay. We're all glowing. And so yep. would the telescope be if it wasn't cold. Yeah. So it's this array of, I guess, hexagonal mirrors that – so the way this works – you point it someplace in space that captures light. And then there's this other mirror, right? That's out sort of on a that's tripod right. away from it. And so the, those big mirrors, then they reflect back into this other central mirror. And then yeah. that shoots into, I assume, some kind of charge couple device yeah. or something that captures it. Is that how it works? Yeah. Let me, uh, that's a good question. You know, basically, the, the first of all, the design of this telescope is a particular optical design called a tri-mirror anastigmat. Uh, which mm-hmm. means there's three major mirrors. There's a first, there's big primary mirror, but it's not one mirror, as you said. It's all these hexagonal segments. And one thing I didn't mention is that there is about three months of alignment left. These mm. little mirrors have to all act like they're parts of one mirror. They can't have what's called piston relative to each other, where yep. one, one is kind of out of step with the rest or angled a little bit sideways. All of that has to be taken into account to the level where deviations from perfection needs to be a small fraction of the wavelength of, that they're interested in. And that okay. means hundreds of nanometers. And that's wow. Very so not a lot of margin of error on no, this. No, no. Yeah. They're going to have to be super careful. And then, like, as you said, there's a secondary mirror at the end of a secondary mirror structure mm-hmm. that reflects light back through the primary middle, mirror's middle. There's a hole there and to a third mirror. And then that light essentially arrives essentially as a collimated light ready for different instruments. Hmm. And each instrument is not small. I mean, these things are very, very complex instruments. And so the way these facilities work is you build the major telescope, the optical assembly, and it provides a compressed, super fantastic beam. Now it's a compressed version of this very precious, you know, light sample. 
And mm-hmm. now you can divert it with a steerable mirror to one of any number of instruments that are there. And so the instruments on, on James Webb are the NIRCAM, that NIR is near infrared camera, just takes nice pictures in the near infrared. Then NIRSPEC yep. does the same thing, but with spectra. And then there is MIRI, which was built at JPL where I was. MIRI mm-hmm. is a mid-infrared and more challenging in the coolness sense, in the sense that it okay. has to be cooler because it's now in mid-infrared all the way out yep. to like 20-some microns of uh, wavelength. And so there's four instruments, and they're going to be doing imaging and spectroscopy in the near and mid-infrared. So this isn't just a telescope. I mean, this is like a little a portable observatory exactly. in space. It is an observatory. Wow. That is right. And so my understanding is it's still on its way to this gravitationally sort of sable spot yes. somewhere. And I think it's supposed to get there on the 23rd of January. Where, where do you know where, where this is exactly? Where it's going to, where it's going to yeah, stop? Yeah, this is a in this 18th century. Uh, I think it would have been mathematician Lagrange figured mm-hmm. out that if you solve the equations of gravity, there there is between for Sun and Earth a stable yep. spot that is about a let me get that right. It's about a million miles. I'm mm-hmm. going to get my miles and kilometers mixed up, but it's yeah, about, sure. let's call it a, m- a million kilometers. Okay. No, 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 no. It's 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 a million miles, right? Just nine hundred thousand miles, and it's about one and a half million kilometers, which is handy to remember. It's roughly one percent of the distance between the Earth and the uh, Sun. Sorry. So you go from the Sun to the Earth. That's one astronomical yep. unit, one hundred fifty million kilometers. Then you go 1% further and you are at L2, the second Lagrange point. There's various Lagrange points. This is that stable spot. Its advantage is that a million miles away from the Earth, the Earth is now not even the size of your tip of your finger. Wow. The importance of that is that the Earth itself, Earth shine, is a source of heat and thermal disturbance for these telescopes that are so precise. So now the Earth is just almost like a star. So the Earth itself looks small. The sun mm-hmm. looks, well, the sun it's is still small, sun. but it's very powerful, yeah. 1,000 watts <laughs> yeah. per square meter. So that, that puppy is very hot. But, yeah. but what you then do is the way this thing is deployed and arranged, the sun shield, it never looks anywhere closer than about 40-ish degrees from the sun. I see. So it's always looking away. But because you know it's following the Earth's orbit, Mm-hmm. Every place on the you know four pi star radiance all the way around the yeah. sky is available twice a year. Every okay, and so it can do any. It can look at anywhere it wants uh, if it, if you schedule it the right time of the year, basically. Okay, yeah. So we're almost out of time for this, but we're going to do two interviews on this because we obviously want to get into the details about the Webb Telescope. But before we end, say tell us one thing that this telescope will be really good at detecting and seeing that, you know, say that the Hubble telescope or the other telescopes weren't good at? Yeah, because of its infrared capability, it is going to be able to see objects that were too cool to see. Mm -hmm. It is going to see further, deeper, and longer go in the early universe and Mm -hmm. the formation of the universe. It's going to be able to probe those and it is also going to be able to do uh, spectroscopy of the atmospheres of some planets, which is the capability we have now, but not at yeah. the level that this thing is going to be able to do. So anyone that's a regular listener of ID of the Future then is going to know that this is going to have interesting implications for questions about the origin of the universe, questions about 
fine tuning and questions about the prevalence uh, or lack thereof of other planets, right? All of those yeah. things, but all the cool stuff, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It's going to be an exciting instrument and it's going to have a lot to offer. And so far, it's off to a good start. That's terrific. Okay, well, thanks. That's, a, that's enough for this, this first interview. But those that are interested, stick around and we will have a second interview where Bijan Namadi and I will, will get into the implications of the James Webb telescope. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.